Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Great. So I'd just like to uh, go through a couple of quick slides in case you folks are not super familiar with the Colorado River Basin and, and some of these issues. So uh, this map shows the Colorado River Basin. And that's our focus at the water desk and what we're going to be focusing here um, on the panel. But I think you know, a lot of the issues that the Colorado River Basin is facing are also issues in other places here in the United States and, and elsewhere. So as the map shows, um, the boundaries of the basin includes uh, seven states as well as a portion of Mexico. And it encompasses about 250,000 square miles, uh, including some of the most spectacular landscapes uh, in the nation, if not the world. So one of the key things about the Colorado River is that the precipitation that falls within the basin doesn't necessarily stay in the basin. So on this map, you can see some of these uh, red cross-hatched areas, and those represent um, some big cities that are outside the hydrologic boundaries of the basin but receive water uh, from the Colorado River and its tributaries. And we're talking Los Angeles, San Diego, Salt Lake City, Albuquerque, and of course here the Front Range of Colorado. And in addition to that, the river supplies Las Vegas, Tucson, and Phoenix, uh, which are within the basin. So in total, about 40 million people depend on the Colorado River, and it has an annual economic output, uh, the Colorado River, that is, of $1.4 trillion. That's trillion with a T. So the Colorado River is um, incredibly important, sort of hard to overstate its importance in this area. But in terms of its flow, uh, the river is actually kind of puny. This uh, graphic shows <laughs> that um, the Pacific Institute, this graphic from the Pacific Institute shows the average annual flow of US rivers. And you can see that compared to the Mississippi River, the Columbia River, Colorado River is pretty meager in terms of its annual flow. So. I just wanted to go through um, this graphic from the National Climate Assessment. And I'm going to go from the top left and go clockwise. Um, the first uh, graphic on the upper left shows the Colorado River's flow. And as you can see, it varies dramatically from year to year. Uh, but in recent times, the basin has been drying out. That straight line is the trend line. And you can see that it has been going down. So moving uh, to the right, on uh, the upper right, uh, that chart basically shows the amount of uh, water, the volume of Lake Powell and Lake Mead. And uh, Lake Mead started filling in the 30s, Lake Powell in the 1960s. Uh, when I started covering these issues in the late 1990s, Mead and Powell were more or less full. But since the year 2000, it has been um, on a downward trajectory at times quite steeply. So you might ask, you know, why is that? And so if you look at the lower right uh, graphic, that shows the upper basins, uh, Colorado River Basin's precipitation. Of course, it also goes up, up and down very dramatically. But you can see that the trend line is actually kind of flat, um, although certainly in the last uh, 20 years, we've had a lot of dry years. Uh, but as you know, Brad will tell us, since his research is focused on this, the final graphic in the lower left, the temperature has clearly been going up. And that is a major factor in explaining why the Colorado River's flows have been declining. Higher evaporation rates, longer growing season, and also um, you know, more demand for water in, in, uh, in warmer temperatures. So um, you know, I think a lot of people are now, rather than referring to what's happening as a drought, which implies a short-term situation that will eventually improve, they're using words like aridification, which uh, imply a long-term change in the climate um, of this area. So finally, I just want to talk about another major um, force and stressor on the Colorado River in addition to climate change, and that, of course, is population growth. Uh, this graphic that I made shows the population of the seven basin states uh, starting in 1850 and then going to 2040. So in 1850, this uh, region um, had about 500,000 res uh, residents, about 2% of the population in the country. Uh, today, more than 60 million people live in these seven states, and they account for about one-fifth of uh, the uh, population and the economy. So all of these people demand water in order to survive here. Uh, but you know, before the uh, climate change was on anybody's mind, uh, the Colorado River faced this fundamental dilemma that the river is very much over-allocated and oversubscribed. There's way more rights to the water than there is water in the river. 
And most of the Colorado River water, uh, as you may know, is used for agriculture, not cities. So one of the megatrends that we're seeing is a transfer of water from agricultural areas and farms to cities, and we can certainly talk about that today. So that's the crash course in the Colorado River, and just to frame uh, a very complicated issue. So I'll uh, turn this off, and we'll start talking with our panel. So um, I guess why don't we start, um, you know, with Daryl and come down this way. Would love to hear just opening statements. Um, I'll ask some questions, and then we'll open it up to the audience. Sure. Darryl? Good morning, everybody. Um, oh yes, please oh. use the mic. Thanks. Sorry, I thought you had one over there. Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you, Mitch. Um, really appreciate the opportunity to be able to share with you this morning uh, some of the work that that, that I'm up to and. and um, not only with the Ten Tribes Partnership, but with the Water and Tribes Initiative. Um, I appreciate the introduction. My tribal affiliations are Hickory Apache Nation, Zia Pueblo, and Jemez Pueblo. And uh, I was told by one of my uncles from Zia Pueblo, when you combine those three tribes, you get a Navajo. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and based on that introduction, you know, I think... Um, you know, in a past life, I was a casino guy. I was a hospitality guy for my tribe, a resource uh, uh, development guy, oil and gas, did some big deals. And for me, it was all about, you know, chasing that big dollar for economic development purposes for my tribe. And, uh, and you know, something happened 10 years ago. You know, I think the river was calling out to me, and, uh, and my life absolutely changed. And since then, you know... Um, I've, I've been, you know, I, I saw, you know, what was going on in terms of my tribe's inability to, to, to be a part of, of policy tables and to, to be able to have the flexibility and the equity to, to fully develop our, our, our settlement rights. And, um, and I really saw that, you know, that the, the key to our, our moving forward as, as our tribe and the rest of the tribes in the basement, bay basement, <laughs> basin, yeah. Yeah, basement is the lower basin. Um, <laughs> um, I, I really saw that, you know, we, we needed to be able to, to start to build a foundation of understanding and relatedness that we don't live in a vacuum. And, and to really have an understanding, you know, based on the 29 tribes in the basin that, you know, each are unique sovereign entities and that, the, you know, one tribal solution obviously wasn't an answer. And our, 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 our success was dependent on our ability to really forge partnerships and create relationships with the broader basin. And definitely something that I'm interested in doing now. And also really looking at uh, uh, how, you know, we lead with environmental cultural issues in terms of who we are as human beings rather than the other way around. And so, and then translating um, tribal traditional values, spiritual values into language, hopefully, that will be uh, understood by the non-tribal world as we move forward. So, um, and, and, and so part of this whole process is really, you know, um, um, being able to tell the story from the tribal side and, and, and create relatedness, especially in light of, you know, that we're very, very late into this game, you know, Colorado River Compact 1922, and the fact that, you know, uh, we, were, we, didn't, we were, didn't have inclusion into the 2007 interim guideline process, and just until very recently with DCP, we've started to have some kind of a, a, a participation into that process. And so we really see that this being a really crucial time for tribes in terms of moving forward. Forward and, um, and 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 really, as as the vision statement says in the Ten Tribes Partners from the Ten Tribes Partnership, that we will lead from a spiritual mandate to ensure that the river is always protected and and available for all living creatures. Great, thanks. So I'll just ask a question or two of each um, of our panelists, and um, let me start with um, Daryl. So. Uh, Native Americans tribes in the basin have very significant uh, water rights, as I mentioned. Uh, but it's one thing to have a water right, and it's another thing to actually be able to use the water. So it w I think it would help for you to explain the challenge that, that tribes face, uh, that they may have these rights, but they may not be uh, perfected, and it may be a challenge to use them. So could you tell, the, um, tell us a little bit more about that issue? Sure. And, and, and again, it goes back to, you know, uh, looking at the law of the river and our inclusion or our lack of inclusion into that whole process, you know, coming into the game late. And, and yeah, I think it's really great that the federal government, you know, um, 
uh, initiated and, and, and followed through on, on, on completing, you know, especially like my tribe settlement. Um, and, and the thing about those settlements is each one is uniquely different from the next, you know, based on the tribe's unique geographic situation and, and, and those kind of things. And, uh, and those challenges have been, you know, uh, an absolute inability because, like, for instance, our tribal settlement, it says, you know, that we have a quantification of water that we can do use to develop, you know, in the way that we, we see fit to develop those water rights. But they're, they're also tied to, well, you have to adhere to all applicable state law. You have to adhere to all applicable, you know, uh, 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 federal law. And, and so for, like, for us, being in northwest New Mexico, um, it really limits our ability to be able to develop our water rights. Our water is delivered to two storage facilities, one 40 miles away, one 25 miles away, without any real mechanism to get it back to the reservation. So our only means is to be able to, to, be able to, 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 to market or lease our water rights because uh, for economic purposes. And, and, and the constrictions of interstate marketing and our inability to, to be self-determined and not having sometimes those relationships with the states in terms of partnerships where we can actually be able to maybe utilize and be partners with the, with the state that we reside in to actually forward water development in the state as a whole has just not been available to us. And again, going back to that whole idea of like, you know, there's, there's an expectation or tribes are supposed to have a solution. And when we haven't been a part of this process, you know, for the last almost, you know, 75, 80 years, you know, I think it's, 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 it's really uh, uh, unreasonable to have an expectation that we're all are going to have an immediate uh, response to, well, what is the ask? You know, and it's like, well, you created this game. Now you want us to all of a sudden have an answer on how we move forward. But, you know, that's just that's not realistic. And, and, and why aren't you helping us in terms of forwarding, creating a solution um, in terms of how we move forward? Because if we don't deal with, you know, tribal water rights and, and 20 percent of the volume of the Colorado River, and right now in the upper basin, uh, almost half a million acre feet of unused tribal entitlement that goes down the river for free, at some point in time as the supply demand, you know, expands, then, you know, we're going to have to deal with it anyway. And it'll probably be a, in a contentious environment. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. Well, let's move on to Jim, please. Thanks. It's a real um, pleasure and honor to be here. I want to just, first of all, express my appreciation for the work of journalists in general and environmental journalists in particular. Um, the fourth state is always, has always been an important function in our country, but particularly in these times, um, I just appreciate the work that you all do, so thank you. Um, I represented Colorado for a number of years on interstate Colorado River issues as the governor's representative um, was involved in uh, the negotiations that led to surplus guidelines in 2001 under which California agreed to reduce its overall demand on the river, the 2007 guidelines that balanced Lake Powell and Mead and created some ways to move water around in the lower basin, and the two Mexican uh, treaty minutes that uh, allowed pulse flows to go into the delta and a relationship of bringing Mexico into the basin as a, as a partner with Interior and the states. Um, we're clearly at a new inflection point uh, in the history of the river with uh, the renegotiation of those 07 guidelines that's uh, due to start in at the, by the end of 2020 and conclude by 2026. Six years seems like a long time, but in water world, that's not very long. And, and I think a lot of people are anxious to kind of get going and see what the landscape, waterscape looks like moving forward toward 2026. Um, Having been involved in really some pretty significant events that have created an atmosphere of collaboration and, co and cooperation on the river instead of litigation, um, this time again is particularly, I think, important in the history given the status of storage in Lakes Powell and Mead, um, given the implications of a warming climate on the river. Um, and given the population growth um, that was alluded to earlier, um, from Denver Water's perspective, uh, serving a quarter of the state's population, we secure about half of our water supply from the Colorado River Basin. 
uh, through a couple of tunnels that, uh, that, that go under the Continental Divide. Um, all of that use is junior to the Colorado River Compact. So as a result of that, if, if we kind of go to the hierarchy of priorities on the river and there's actual a, a legal enforcement of those priorities, Denver would stand to lo lose half of our water supply to a quarter of the state's population. So we have a lot at stake um, in securing uh, a sustainable future, not just for Colorado, not just for our water supply, but for the basin as a whole. Because if, if that works for everybody, if we have a system of management that will sustainably um, preserve this river for all of its various purposes, from environmental to recreation to municipal to agricultural, um, then I think that we can um, survive in a future of uh, significant warming and reduced flows. It's not going to be easy, but I think that we can do it. Great. Thanks, Jim. So um, I think one of the undeniable trends in Western water is that per capita water use in many, many places has decreased uh, and that a lot of cities are becoming more efficient. But having said that, um, very often when we talk about municipal water use, a lot of people question why more isn't done about conservation and trying to be more water wise. So I'd like to hear your thoughts about that, Jim. Um, could Denver Water be doing more to conserve water? For example, other Western states have things like uh, uh, cash for grass uh, programs in which people are paid to remove turf from their property. So is Denver doing uh, Denver Water doing enough? What else could you be doing? Why don't you have a program like they do in Las Vegas to remove grass? Um, well, first of all, uh, like other Western cities, uh, our, our overall water use has reduced significantly. We're, we've, we're using about 20% less than we did about 15 years ago. We have spent about $100 million over the course of our conservation programs um, toward conservation and efficiency. Um, and as a result of that investment, we've saved about a million acre feet of water in the Colorado River Basin. So that's a million acre feet that's basically going down the river that wouldn't have gone down but for our conservation programs. Um, we've had a nationally recognized conservation program called Use Only What You Need. Um, and what we're doing now is kind of moving beyond conservation um, toward efficiency. So. We're doing rebate programs. Uh, we're doing water budgeting programs. Through technology, we're able to literally look house by house and understand what the potential indoor and outdoor water budgets of those particular properties are. And then we'll literally reach out to individual customers and talk to them about how they could most efficiently use water for their particular houses. And then the efficiency is not, at Denver Water, I think our ethic goes beyond just efficiency and conservation, and it goes to overall sustainability. So um, as an example, we're, we're redeveloping our main campus in Denver, and in, in it will be, we're going to move in at the end of this month, the most sustainable campus development that's yet been created in Colorado. Uh, we're doing rainwater capture. Uh, we have an in-building recycling system that's treating wastewater and using it for irrigation and toilet flushing. It's a lead platinum net zero energy building. Um, I would invite any of you to come and tour and write about it. We're also building a brand new water treatment plant. And um, as, the, as we were beginning the design of that plant, um, I had the bright idea of, of saying to the engineers, can we actually build this plant off the grid? So, and utilize on-site solar, hydro, um, other energy. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Um, but as a result, we're building this plant now, and it's going to be on the grid. But the reason is, is because it's going to be a net energy producer. We're actually going to be selling energy back onto the grid. We're involved with the U.S. Forest Service in a program called Forest to Faucet, where we're doing forest treatments um, in national forest land to enhance the sustainability of watersheds. We have an agreement with the Western Slope of Colorado um, to improve the aquatic health of the streams that feed our system. And it's part of the ethic of um, that if the streams aren't healthy from an environmental standpoint 100 years from now, then we've basically shot ourselves in the foot and we haven't done our job for our customers. We're reducing lead service lines in our system to improve the public health of our customers. And um, we have a goal of being an overall net zero utility. So that's everything from our vehicles, um, every 
carbon fuel that we utilize uh, because of the, our ability to generate hydropower, um, we believe that we can be a total net zero utility. So again, it's beyond just conservation efficiency, it's toward that overall ethic of 100, 150 years to now, what's the sustainability of our system? Mm -hmm. And just to follow up, the issue of turf and grass, which always seems mm -hmm. to come up, um, I believe one of your predecessors, Chips Barry, had the idea that uh, grass and turf in Denver and surrounding areas was, in a sense, a reservoir that um, could be um, looked at in a drought time and people could cut back on their outdoor irrigation, which is not essential. Um, and that if you didn't have that, the demand would be hardened, as they say, and mm -hmm. that it's much more difficult uh, to reduce uh, water use. Um, is that the utility's philosophy still? And what is the, the attitude towards grass, which is clearly a huge source of, of consumptive water use? Well, we're not, we're not, we don't have a cash for grass program per se, but um, I spoke about our water budget program of working with homeowners. Part of that is saying, is educating customers that you can replace turf grass with other vegetation that is much less water consumptive. Um, and if you drive around Denver today, you will see conversion of uh, bluegrass into different types of landscapes um, that is really a result of the program, but also kind of a growing trend of water use. It's amazing how our customers are aware of the connection of their use of water to overall uh, what's, what's happening in the environment. So um, if it rains in the Denver metro area, our water use just drops like a rock and people are turning off their irrigation systems. They're aware of drought, they're, the con and maybe it's the outdoor connection in Colorado that, uh, and the ethic that we have, but um, our customers are very responsive to those signals. Um, and so I think that part of it is behavioral change, and I think just you know buying turf grass doesn't necessarily get at that overall ethic of water use and connection to where the water comes from, and how can we, and the other thing is that Obviously, urban landscapes are incredibly important from heat island effect to economic impact to the social impacts of, of having um, healthy urban landscapes. But again, it doesn't have to be bluegrass. It, it can be much lower water consuming species that are aesthetically pleasing, that provide shade and everything else. Great. Thank you. Next up, Heather. Oh, yeah. No worries. <laughs> Um, I'm Heather Hansman, and I am the journalist on this panel, this journalist conference. Um, and it's actually really cool and sort of intimidating to be on this panel because these guys are, in a lot of ways, the sources that I look to for writing about water. Um, and I'll back up a little bit and talk about the book that Mitch mentioned that came out this spring. It's called Down River, and it's about uh, the Green River, which is the biggest tributary of the Colorado. It is when he showed that map. Comes down from Wyoming. It's in the upper basin, so it's a big source. Um, and I, the storyline of that book is that I paddled the length of the river to look at all the different water users on it. So I looked at ag, and I looked at cities, and I looked at storage, and I looked at ecosystems um, to kind of look at what's going on there now and then what's potentially going to happen in the future given what Brad's looking at, which is sort of the environmental impact of drought and climate change and what Daryl's getting into, which is groups that have historically been marginalized, where is their water rights going to play in, um, and kind of look at this is a cool panel, I think, because it gets into sort of the like environmental, logistical, equity, math issues that get into water use. You know, how do we get water to people in Denver without cutting off places that, you know, maybe can't pay for it as much but need it more? How do we kind of make sure, like Daryl was saying, these people who have been haven't been in the conversation in the past? How do we make sure that we can build them in in an equitable way? Um, and I think a lot of what I do and a lot of what I think about is, like Daryl said, none of this stuff happens in a vacuum. And, but historically, a lot of it has kind of been managed in a vacuum and treated in a vacuum. So how, how do I, how do we as journalists kind of like pull these threads together and make sure we're telling stories about where the overlaps are, where the conflict points are, where the potential solutions are, even if they're tricky and weird, and we're trying to invent things that haven't happened before. So yeah, so that's kind of like my line into storytelling on this sort of thing. Great. So um, in one of the reviews of your book, um, you were... Uh, uh, the review said that uh, your misconception going into the trip was that things would look more black and white. And the quote from you is, I think it comes back to the idea that nobody's the bad guy. 
I'd like for you to say a little bit more about that and, and how this trip changed how you think about Western water issues. About bad guys? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, guys. Yeah, angered guys. I think that, to me, is sort of like the nugget of this and sort of the, you know, 30,000-foot issue about water, especially in the Colorado River Basin, is that, like that slide you put up, the fundamental disconnect is that there's more water allocated than actually exists. Like, there's not logistically, legally, math-wise enough to go around. Um, and within that, that creates this culture of fear kind of and defensiveness and that everyone, we all need water. Like that's baseline, the most important thing. Um, and when you have this math problem basically, which means that there aren't, there isn't gonna be enough to go around, everyone gets defensive and everyone is really, you know, you talk to people who have been, you know, ag producers who've been working the land for 150 years, they have a really concrete sense of why they wanna be there and doing that. Um, and they are defensive about that kind of history and their perspective might be very different than somebody like Jim who's trying to make sure that people in Denver have water that's coming out of their taps. And they're both right, but there's, it's a math problem. You know, like there's not enough, there's not enough. And I think coming into this, you know, I thought a lot about sort of like the narrative structure of the book and how to tell a story and you know, my, me and my little boat floating down river, that was sort of like the narrative line. And I learned about that as I went, you know, and I was kind of looking at all these pieces. And as you get in there and you see that, you get this much more concrete sense of like, oh yeah, these guys are, nobody's wrong. They're just trying, they're coming at it from really, really different ways. Um, and the conflict point is that everybody can't be right and get all the things that they want. And I thought that about that a lot yesterday morning in the plenary, where it felt like people were like having these conversations where like they really weren't speaking the same language <laughs> and not, you know, coming at it from the same way. And I think that that, is this really big challenge in water, and that like everybody's right in what they're trying to? For the mo there are some bad guys, like some people, <laughs> but for the most part, you know, like that makes the question really hard. Great, thank you. All right, and so we'll move to Brad. And thanks to Brad, he was on the preceding panel, so it's like he's a pitcher doing a double duty and a double header. <laughs> so appreciate his extra effort. How many people are new and weren't in the last session in this room? All right, good, good, good. The rest of you are gluttons for punishment. <laughs> and Mitch, let me just say, you did a terrific job of laying out the whole basin and problems and issues. Um, and you did an okay job on the intros. but <laughs> <laughs> And like Jim, I want to thank all of you for what you do. I mean, I would argue there's nothing more important going on in both the world of water and climate than what journalists are telling the people of the world right now. You are the storytellers on the, the most important stories, at least in my life, uh, in the world right now. And so thank you all. Um, so let me do a, just a quick climate change summary. So for 40 years, scientists have thought that warming temperatures in the basin would reduce flow. And within the last five years, we have a whole number of studies that actually show that this is true. And not just my work, but the work of Connie Woodhouse and Julie Vano and Marty Herling and Dennis Lettenmeyer are all in that list. And I'm happy to share any of these studies with you. The idea here is that runoff efficiency is declining in the, in the basin. And so for a given amount of precip, we see less water. And the answer is super simple, Mitch, as you said, it's just more evaporation. It's longer day, longer, a longer growing season, higher temperatures on any given day, a thirstier atmosphere that wants to hold more moisture all combined to reduce flows. Since 2000, the river's down about 17% per year, and the estimates are pretty wide-ranging. The one Overpeck and I came up with in, in 2017 was about a third of that 17% decline was due to higher temperatures. You'll see numbers that range from a 6 to 50%. Um, so it's a pretty broad range, but nobody doubts that the, the term hot drought as opposed to dry drought is a real phenomenon and that temperatures are influencing the supply of water. And if you go out into the future, you know, based on Overpeck and my work, 20% loss by 2050 if precip stays flat, potentially 35% or more by 2100, again, if precip stays flat. The, the precipitation projections are really problematic. Um, they all show drier south, uh, lower basin, and somewhere in Colorado, maybe a hinge point where wetter to the north and drier to the south. But depending on what model and what future we really endure, it's quite hard to say what that really looks like. Um, 
you know, the this whole issue, stationary is dead, the concept that the past is the guide to the future that has been so important for water management in the 20th century, it's stationary is dead. We Right now, we're flying blind as to what this century is going to provide us. And as I said in the last session, a repeat of those five years from 2000 to 2004 probably drains Lake Mead and Lake Powell. The DCP or not, just to give you an idea, the nine, little over nine million acre foot per year average, what that do, would do to the system. And, and mind you, 2000 to 2004, I mean, it could be worse, right? I mean, and don't just think we could have 2000, 2004, we could have worse than 2000 to 2004. And so moving forward, we need a system that's a, as robust as we can. We can obviously hope for the best, but plan for the worst. Um, this year, I mean, we had a terrific year of runoff, 2019, uh, historic avalanche season, and yet the hottest September on record. A flash drought set in in August and September, and, uh, and, and that's our, our future, right? And that, those flash droughts now dry out the soil moisture, and that carries forward into runoff in 2020. Um, it sets us back. And, and even uh, NOAA's Colorado River, River Forecast Center you know, has put this in, into their, their models. So with that, I think I'll stop. Great, thank you. Well, let me just follow up with a question, and then I'd like to open it up to the audience. So I think it's incumbent upon us as journalists to try to explain uh, the science uh, of climate change and how it's going to affect precipitation, drought, runoff, the flow in the river. But there's some nuance there, and it's not necessarily um, uh, an easy story to explain. And by that, I mean we hear a lot about global warming increasing the moisture content in the atmosphere, that warmer air can hold more moisture. And so there's pretty uh, solid evidence that we're having heavier downpours, so more rain. Um, but we're also hearing that in some parts of the country, like in the Southwest, climate change is causing drought, so a drier situation. And a lot of people say that the wetter areas like the Pacific Northwest will get wetter, the drier areas will get drier. Here in Colorado, we're kind of in the middle. What is your advice for journalists about how to explain this? Because um, it may cause some confusion because the signals are going in different directions in different places. Run and hide? <laughs> <laughs> um, seriously, I, you know, within the, the southwestern portion of the United States, there's pretty good science that the, it's going to dry. So the lower basin, as I mentioned, and um, Mediterranean areas, 30 degrees north and 30 degrees south. Um, this whole idea of Hadley cells, if you're not aware of that concept, expanding. Um, so the high-pressure system that sets up over to the south of us and makes these great American deserts is heading our way. Uh, within Colorado, it's a little more challenging, but those deserts are headed our way. Um, La Nina, El Nino modulate this in interesting ways. So if you know a little bit about the basin, La Nina is uniformly dry in the southwest. Uh, El Nino tends to be wet, but not quite as uniformly as La Nina. There's a little bit of asymmetry there. Um, you know, I, it, it's challenging to tell this water cycle story, although I, I often say climate change is water change, and um, weather whiplash is part of it that makes, makes it a little more confusing, that term that Dan Swain out at UCLA coined, and arguably 2019 is, a, is an example of that. So... Um, I mean, I, I've been a proponent and have used the aridifying term because, as you suggested, that you know, using drought after 20 years, we, we need some new nomenclature. I've also suggested new normal is the wrong terminology. New abnormal works better uh, because normal implies predictability, and we don't have that. So, I mean, there's a lot of nuance in here, and um, maybe one of these days we'll get a precipitation signal that we actually, out of science, that we can actually rely on. This new NOAA study actually suggests there is a declining precip signal, which frankly, it, to me, is a lot more worrying than, than the idea that temperature is actually causing a flow decline here, because just because of the leverage that precip has on flow, it's much stronger than, than the leverage that temperature has. So, um, I mean, I'm happy to work with you in any way to help, help put this in ways that are understandable, but um, it's a challenge. Can I ask a follow-up question? Mr. Absolutely. Um, you said when you were talking about kind of the modeling, hope for the best and plan for the worst. And I think something that I struggle with a lot in trying to tell stories about this is making that 
when we, like you said, we don't know what the worst is, how do you make that tangible and how do you then tell stories? I know Laura mentioned this yesterday. It can be hard to pitch stories about water to editors because it doesn't feel sort of sexy or news hooky. And so how do we then try and like convey that, what the worst potentially could be? And maybe this is an interim guidelines question too. What yeah. we're kind of planning for the future, and how do we make people aware of what that's going to be? That's Jim. Yeah, <laughs> I, I said the cheap seats, right? <laughs> um, well, that's you know I mentioned kind of an inflection point, and um, for example, when when we negotiated the the interim guidelines in two thousand seven. Um, we did what was we were politically able to do, particularly in the lower basin in terms of how much and how deep and how soon um, shortages would be imposed on Arizona and, and Nevada in particular. Um, California was advocating for um, sooner and deeper cuts as Lake Mead dropped. Um, but we did what we were politically able to do at the time. And I think everybody including those in Arizona, recognized at the time that they probably weren't going to be adequate to the task. And so now in the, in the face of another kind of re-up for whatever period of time, it's not going to be a permanent. We've learned nothing is permanent. Um, you know, how can we put in place triggers and mechanisms to deal with what might possibly be the worst. And we're going to need to look at, I think, some pretty scary hydrological scenarios um, and think how can we possibly accommodate those um, in the system going forward. And so to me, um, that's going to be one of the most difficult conversations is how close can we get to true resiliency in the system? Um, versus what we can just do politically. Okay, great. So I'd like to open it up to the audience for questions. By now you guys know the rules, so priority to SEJ members and journalists. Uh, please ask questions rather than make speeches. And we're also going to have, uh, we're also going to repeat the questions so that it can be recorded for uh, future use. Ted. Uh, General, this is for you. Um, you were saying how tribal water part of this has come to the game pretty late and it seems to me as, uh, as the tribes firm up their water it introduces a, a, a real wild hair into the system that has very little buffer in it and how do you see the, the tribal water influence going forward in the planning process for the use of the river? Um, you know, I just uh, I just kind of go back a little bit, then I'll answer your question. I just want to, you know, thank Brad again for his always his uplifting messaging. <laughs> <laughs> he does it in a way it's like the world's going to collapse. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and kind of, you know, and and I, uh, you know, we talk about drought contingency planning, and I just I just always irk the crap out of me that, you know. We, almost, you know, 15, 16 years into this drought, we, we start this uh, drought contingency planning, and it's like, well, we've already been in this drought for around 10 years, and now we're going to do something? And, and, and the basin uh, uh, study, supply-demand study, you know, uh, showed that, you know, by 2060, the imbalance is going to be, between supply and demand, is uh, going to be about 3 million acre-feet of water. And so... You know, just that sense of urgency, you know, that, that doesn't really seem to be in existence, you know, in terms of if we don't have a healthy, sustainable living river, then none of the rest of the stuff is possible anyway, you know. And so, um, again, you know, looking at it from that context, you know, where is the urgency here? I mean, we talk a lot about these models, and then you throw tribes on top of that model, too. And so traditionally, we've, we've relied on, you know, those people who are supposed to be kind of our, our trustees. And I think there's been an unrealistic expectation sometimes from the tribal side about what that role is supposed to be. Because we have the states that we reside in that are supposed to kind of, you know, work on a government-to-government -government relationship with us. Then we have the federal government as well. 
But, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, there's this mindset that we're given a settlement, then now we got to go figure it out. And those settlements or decrees usually came with a pool of money. But again, you know, if you're, if you're talking about, you know, bridging that capacity to divide in terms of being able to actually build infrastructure for water development and learning from the ground up, you know, um, th that's a real challenge. And so we have some real incredible social justice issues that exist in terms of equity for tribes. And, and who's going to actually going to make that happen? You know, we do. And because uh, uh, we've committed to the fact that we're going to work this out. And, and, and it's been a real challenge because, you know, there, there, there's 28 or 29 uh, 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 tribes in the basin, each, each dis distinct sovereign entities. And say this all the time, if you know one tribe, you know one tribe. <laughs> and so, you know, building broad consensus uh, uh, amongst those tribes who are at absolutely different varying, at different varying degrees in terms of their own internal capacity with their governance and their social issues. And so you just have to paint the picture. And as has been stated before, you know, I you know, really appreciate the work that you folks do. And I've had the privilege of speaking at the National Hispanic Journalist Association because 30% of the basin is, is Latino, but who represents them? Talk to, talk to the National uh, uh, Native uh, American Journalist Association again about like, how do we create the listening, you know, in, in, in the journalistic world about, um, um, and so that's a little bit backwards, so that, you know, we, we know what's going to be effective messaging for us. Because too often, you know, uh, tribes will talk, talk about spiritual and cultural values, and the, the reception has been, you know, oh, here come those tribes talking about their foo-foo spirituality stuff again. <laughs> and, but really looking at a way to, to articulate those cultural, environmental, and translate the issues and translate those issues and, and value systems into something that the non-tribal world understands. Because when we start to take a look at the broader picture, you know, on my Pueblo side, we've been around this area for thousands of years, living, sustainable, sustainable, uh, living a sustainable, balanced life. And when we start to look at that compared to the experiment of the United States, a little over 200 years old, there's probably some real lessons that we can learn from, from tribes in terms of what that sustainability and that balance actually looks like. And, and so... To your question, you know, how do we see ourselves fitting into that? God, we've got to build the foundation of an understanding of 29 separate sovereign entities and start to create a situation where there's actually dialogue which didn't exist before. When I first got into this game 10 years ago, you know, uh, you know people thought I was crazy, but I just didn't understand. So the law of the river gives us this output and, and what we're getting now. And so my question was, well, why don't we change the law of the river? Well, you can't. Well, well, why not? Well, you just can't. And I've never been really given a good answer about why, you know, and, and so I think the law of the river, the foundation of it, you know, really is like protect, defend. And we've created that. And so how is it that we start to move away from that? And I think that for us, what we're trying to do is to paint the picture and, and, and to make awareness about not only the, the inequity issues that have existed for, you know, uh, hundreds of years at this point in time, but really start to, 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 to show the broader basin that, you know, we're interested in being your partner and we're interested in facilitating the conversation and connecting those conversations because we're here. We've been here for the long, the long term and we're going to continue to be here. And so how is it that we actually start to integrate ourselves into that policy process? We've got to build a foundation of relatedness and advocacy for ourselves. And that's how basically, you know, our exclusion from the 2009 basin-wide study really was the, you know, the springboard for us because, you know, the tribes actually were mad and they got into action because once again, 2007 guidelines excluded, not even invited to participate to 2009 basin-wide study. Here we are, we're excluded again. There seems to be this trend going on. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, we want to put ourselves and position ourselves now um, so that, you know, we're ahead of the game in terms of, you know, we understand the, the quantifications to a large degree. Like we said, you know, there really is no kind of secrets in the basin anymore, in the basin anymore because everybody understands each other's hand at this point in time. 
And so I think that traditional game that has been played with water in the Colorado River Basin is kind of coming to an end. And I really think that we're really in a unique situation in, in, in terms of history to really create a new paradigm of what that's going to look like in the basin. And, and I think that's going to be driven by tribes. Great, thanks. Next question. Add on to that. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Um, you know, as, as we alluded to, part of the problem is the overall overallocation of water. So um, tribal water has been overallocated. Upper basin water has been overallocated. Lower basin water has been overallocated. And as Daryl indicated, that creates this dynamic of fighting against each other. But I think part of the history that we can hopefully build on is a history of, you know, you, you say the law of the river can't change. The law of the river is a superstructure or a framework upon which changes can be built. Um, and that's been evident in um, a lot of agreements that have been reached. And when compelling needs arise, I think that we have a history of moving forward and creating change. And particularly with, with tribal rights, um, I wanted to speak to the authorization of the Navajo pipeline, um, which was and is a compelling human need of basic water supply for sustenance for people who've been hauling water miles and miles and miles. And um, there were a lot of gnarly legal issues in the law of the river over the authorization of that pipeline. And um, there were a few of us who figured out a workaround from that superstructure of the law of the river about how that could happen. Um, so I think, you know, when there is need, no matter where that need exists in the basin, I do think that there's a history of people working together to move forward to find solutions to meet that need. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, too, I think drought contingency planning, you know, um, that was just complete, you know, um, um, in December, you know, showed, you know, like if, if tribes are allowed to participate, I don't even know what that, that means, allowed. Um, <laughs> but that's kind of the mindset, right? Oh, somebody to give us permission to do something. Um, but when tribes participate uh, meaningfully, you know, um, they make a difference. And in this particular case, you know, with Gila River Indian Community and the Colorado River Indian tribes, they're critical to the success of that. Mm -hmm. And as Jim mentioned, you know, you know, Navajo Gallup Water Supply Project, it's a billion dollar project, but it, it, it still amazes me today because, you know, we're part of that project because we're providing a lease water to the city of Gallup for a long term sustainable uh, surface water. Um, source that they don't have right now. So you're talking about a community of 50,000. But on a daily basis, you know, you know, 75, 80,000 Navajos still haul water in this country. <laughs> and, and, and it's just amazing to me. And so I think, you know, DCP and some of the current initiatives that, 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 that are in place right now really have, you know, have seen, you know, the positive results of a collaborative effort, as, as Jim mentioned. And so that's kind of the trend. I think everybody sees that and understands that. But uh, the one thing that I would say about the law of the river is that, you know, it seems to be really reactionary. And so, you know, when the need's there, yeah, we get together and, and we do something which is really, really great, but why don't we create some structure and foundation that's inclusive of all the voices that need, that need to be heard and at the same time be able to be reactive so that we're not just convening during a crisis? So the, the, the question is, given the trends of, of warming climate population, everything else we've talked about, can agriculture survive? Can all those economic and sector needs be met um, going into the future? And um, there's the stark reality is that there's going to have to be some reallocation um, and it's clearly complicated to me it goes beyond um, hydrology and it goes into questions of of land use so so certainly in in the northern front range uh, agricultural land is being eaten up by sprawl development um, so it's it's beyond just buy and dry and um, ag uh, sectors being displa displaced from a water perspective. It's literally from a land perspective. Um, and of course, that sprawl development is highly consumptive. Um, on an overall uh, basin-wide level, if you look at the upper basin, 
there's, uh, again, this, this question of over-allocation. Um, the upper basin has this perspective that we have this, we're entitled to seven and a half million acre feet of, of development, you know, beyond the fact that that's not reality from a hydrological perspective. Um, total uses in the upper basin have essentially been flat or declining over the last 30 years. Um, and the, the entire history of water use in the, in the upper basin over the last 30 years has been one of not of growth of in, in more consumption, but actually flat. And that's because, I think, of transfers of water between sectors. Um, and whether it's ag land coming out of production for golf courses in the mountains or in, in subdivision development. Um, but clearly there is, w with, with 80 percent plus or minus of water being used in the, in, in the Colorado River Basin for agricultural uh, water, that's the bank that's going to be tapped. And there's a lot, frankly, of marginal agricultural use that's going to have to move to other uses. And, and I would also say, sorry, <laughs> um, that if we can develop more um, transferability and market mechanisms and ways to um, mitigate um, the, the economic losses, it shouldn't be just a zero-sum game of loss to the ag sector and gain to some other sector. But if we can establish market mechanisms to be able to, for example, transfer conservation savings or, um, you know, compensate communities uh, or help the, the transition, um, you know, we, we also need to be working on that. You kind of stole my one of my points there, oh, but um, but I think there's two big things at play in that question, and I think or that are you know potential future solutions or things that people are looking at it, and I think one of them is land and water use planning together and not thinking about resources in silos and thinking about when you do plan a development you know, on the northern front range, how much water is embedded in that? How when you're when you're thinking about these sort of changing land uses, how much water is on the ground there, what's going to happen there. And I think the other thing that you got into that I think is this sort of story to follow and feels to me like one of the biggest things in this is the market incentives and how do you incentivize somebody. Um, I was at a conference earlier this week and a rancher was talking about how he installed side rolls on his farm and it was like $1.5 million. I don't, can't remember the number, but it was this huge amount of money. And he was like, nobody's compensating me for using less. How do we set up a market where there's an incentive so we can, in getting that water out of ag, in changing the balance a little bit, how do we make it something that's fair for everybody? And that's a really, really hard question, I think. But that, to me, feels like within the framework of the law of the river and the history, that feels like one of the incentives that's going to push the way things get a little bit more equitable in the future. With Runyon, KUNC. Um, so the upper basin states are studying that market mechanism, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just endless. <laughs> uh, um, so the the question is um, related to demand management, and is that something that is act can be actually put in place? And um, how would Denver Water participate in that specifically? Would we be one of the funders um, for that? Um, we, we've gotten into this dynamic of everybody going to their corners, in, at least in Colorado. Uh, we have, uh, does everybody know what demand management is? Yes? No. no. Okay. <laughs> so the, the idea is that as we move toward um, trying to create a more sustainable future um, and specifically creating uh, enough storage in Lake Powell so that the upper basin can meet our compact delivery obligations to the lower basin, um, there are only two ways to do that. One is to move water from upper uh, reservoirs above Lake Powell down into Lake Powell to mitigate against getting below critically low elevations. And the other way is to simply reduce demands. Um, use less water so that more water goes into Lake Powell so that we keep the system alive. Um, Denver Water, Southern Nevada Water Authority, Central Arizona Project, Metropolitan Water District of Southern California started a program called System Conservation Pilot Program. The idea was to just test the market and whether farmers were interested, any water user, not just farmers, were interested in being compensated to reduce their water use to put water into Lake Powell. This wasn't for our benefit. It was really a way to um, seed the idea of a pilot of is there interest out there. That program was incredibly successful beyond uh, all of our expectations. Um, 
and has created the basis for discussions about really establishing a framework for what's called demand management program by which water users would be compensated um, to reduce their water use. Um, that's, created, that's, that's built on the historic paranoia of uh, the West Slope of Colorado versus the East Slope of Colorado, uh, rural economies versus urban economies, and um, in particular, rural economies saying, uh, some people saying, this is, this is a conspiracy, this is a way to get water from us, this is, uh, we have a target on our backs, our communities will be destroyed, um, you know, back to the zero-sum game. And Colorado has established a work group process to, to work through uh, all of these issues and the various ramifications of it. From a front-range perspective, um, this problem of reducing demands and keeping the system afloat is not a front-range West Slope issue, it's a Colorado issue. In, in total, it's an upper basin issue because all four upper basin states, um, Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, and New Mexico, have a collective obligation to meet that compact obligation to the lower basin. Um, so it needs to be basin-wide in nature. It needs to be cooperative in nature, and hopefully it's a, one of these market-based uh, mechanisms, mechanisms that we can um, utilize. But the conversations are going to be enormously difficult and politically charged, and we have to get past the trust barrier uh, in order to have those. Um, as to whether Denver Water would be part of the funding mechanism, um, we've made it clear, as have other front-range um, cities, that our participation is not is 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 not just funding somebody else to use less water, but our participation will be in water. We will be participating in reducing demands in, if we get to that situation on the same basis as other water users in the basin. Um, and I think that's part of our responsibility as a water user in the basin to not just sit back and just pay for somebody else to use less, but um, our obligation is to participate uh, equitably with other geographic regions um, in the Colorado River Basin um, to produce wet water that can go to Lake Powell for the benefit of the system. Great. Um, I just want to ask a quick question of Brad related to agricultural water use. So there's something known as the irrigation efficiency paradox. And you would think that if farms become more efficient with their water use, it would be good for streams and rivers. But, you know, Brad and other researchers have worked on this thing known as the irrigation efficiency paradox, which is sort of counterintuitive. If you could explain that, I think that would be great. You know, I get to say such crummy things all the time. Uh, I want to stop for a second and say something from the heart, which is, Susan Moran, you and Josh did a bang-up job on this conference. Yeah. <laughs> Not over yet. Come tomorrow to the book panel. <laughs> <laughs> so, how many... Please. Done? So, you know, people talk about water efficiency as if it's energy efficiency, right? Mm -hmm. And yet there are two fundamentally different laws that work on those. One's the law of conservation of energy, which effectively says energy runs downhill and you better use it when you've got a high quality form of it, like gasoline or electricity, as best you can, because then it's going to turn into heat. That law does not apply to water. Water, it's the law of conservation of mass. And so when you see something that looks totally inefficient in this same context, like flood irrigation, you are missing the picture. Because in the case of flood irrigation, much of that water is not used at the initial flood point, but then gets reused as a return flow downriver. And so there's this grave misconception that somehow inefficient use in water is something awful and we've lost that one chance like you have with energy to put it to good use. And so scientists have studied this and the real deal here is consumptive use, right? How much does that crop turn that water into ET, evapotranspiration? How much yield do you get? Irrigation efficiency technologies have promoted, been promoted worldwide as this great saving um, whatever for water. And in, in, in practice, what tends to happen, believe it or not, is that you, yes, you divert less water out of the river onto this very efficient field, but believe it or not, consumptive use goes up. 
And so you end up with actually less water in the system. Irrigation efficiency in general, is, it's, it's a good idea. It actually modernizes systems, so drip or, or some kind of fancy sprinkler system um, or other forms of irrigation efficiency are good. Oftentimes when you do that, you reduce two constraints on water use, a labor constraint um, and, a, a, and a timing constraint. Um, you know, when you flood irrigate, oftentimes you can only irrigate once a week just because you, you, you've got labor. So you've got a timing issue there. If you've got drip irrigation, you can turn the dial, and if your plant needs more water, all of a sudden you can get it to them, which means they may actually grow more. Um, so there have been a number of studies that have shown, for example, in New Mexico, if you, if you replace flood irrigation in chili fields, you actually end up with less water. Why is that? Well, those, one of the reasons those furrows go away, and, and over the course of a field that has a whole bunch of furrows, that's more land to plant more chilies on, believe it or not. Um, it, when you irrigate efficiently, oftentimes you water the whole field uniformly, whereas under a flood irrigation, you overwater the top end and underwater the bottom end. So I'm not arguing for, for less efficiency uh, projects, but just don't confuse the law of conservation energy of mass, uh, of mass with the law of conservation of energy. They're really two different things. And that, that's true, no doubt, for return flow-based systems. Yeah. But for a, a terminal irrigation system, such as the Imperial Valley or the Central Arizona Project, your, your yeah, conservation, yeah. you're taking less water off the system. Yeah, I don't want to paint too broad a brush, but yeah. it's not a really simple answer here. And, and you, we need to have our, our eyes open as to what an irrigation efficiency project's really going to do. And I think something that gets missed in talking about or thinking about water use is consumptive versus non-consumptive use, yeah. which you got yeah. into, which is a lot, you know, like when you're flood irrigating a field, it's only something like 25% consumptive, whereas a trans basin diversion or something like that is fully consumptive. So when you're thinking about potentially adding more water to the system or something like that, you have to think about what that end use is and where the water is actually being consumed or not or pushing down through the system. And water is a really particularly tricky thing on that front because, like you were saying, nothing else really behaves like that. Can you just, just explain it just a little bit? <laughs> I'm still having trouble understanding. I get, like, you know, the plants only use so much and then a lot more goes off into the streams and rivers and so, so in the South Platte, it's said that water gets, a, a given drop gets diverted seven times before it actually gets burned up. So how is that possible? Well, it gets put on a field, it runs off either as immediate return flow or a subsurface return flow o over time, which depending on how far the field is from the river, it may take a month or a week or whatever to get back to the river system. But water that sits on top, yeah, there is some, obviously, some evaporation that comes off of that. But on a typical flood irrigation, the number people use is about 50% of it returns and 50% is consumed. Um, and so you can imagine how you could stack what looked like one inefficient farm on top of another and actually have a fairly efficient system. Does that help you, Tom, understand what yeah, goes on? Okay. <laughs> All right. And there, there are actually multiple studies on this out now that, in fact, a piece I wrote in Science in a Policy Forum just last year with a worldwide set of authors I'm happy to share with you. Tony? Um, the, the question relates to um, lawns and urban irrigation being a buffer against drought and um, as, as against what's called demand hardening. And the theory is true um, that the idea was that uh, if the the lawn irrigation was the last reservoir and if push came to shove we could just impose conservation measures as as kind of the last step and um, uh, use that as in essence the last reservoir we've recognizing that um, that that does result in demand hardening so that buffer is gone that means we need to build other areas of resiliency into the system, um, whether it's reuse, whether it's more diverse water um, sources of supply, whether it's uh, regional cooperation in terms of um, uh, hooking up for drought management to other systems, uh, whether it's building trigger points into um, agreements with the Western Slope of Colorado, for example. Um, but in essence, yes, we've, we've lost a little bit of, of buffer that needs to be replaced with other areas of resiliency. 
So the, the question is, if you remove lawns, is, does the crisis go away? The, the crisis gets delayed. Um, you're, you're essentially just buying some time um, by doing that. And, but the ultimate demand hardening um, is there. And, and you, then you begin to, it's, it's almost like the conversion of an agricultural field from alfalfa to a high, to a high valued um, fig or almonds or whatever, that you've created higher value um, trees and other landscaping that you can't just dry up in a year and it's going to come back the next year, that you dry it up and it's dead. You've, you've destroyed an entire and tree canopy for a for a city, for example, um, and which you really can't do. Um, so you've just you've hardened that demand and you've made it, uh, in essence, the the demand part of it less resilient. So you need to build that resiliency back into the supply side of the equation. So the question is, why, why isn't conservation enough? And has anybody really quantified how much conservation could be done or how much is necessary? Um, I, I don't think it's a, a universal question, first of all. I think that uh, every city is different. For example, if you look at the Los Angeles Basin, um, uh, the whole uh, L.A. area is looking at um, water resiliency. And that's because, again, it's a terminal system. It has water importations. It's got native supplies. It's got an ocean right out of its back door that it has a number of options that have historically been ignored uh, in favor of just strict importation, channelizing the Los Angeles River, um, dumping it out into the ocean. And if you start to reverse engineer that and you say, we can go to desal, we can reuse, we can use groundwater storage, then the entire LA area becomes a lot more resilient. Denver is a much different situation because we've got a, a highly productive agricultural economy that's just downstream from us. So. We have uh, the West Slope of Colorado that complains about us taking water from the West Slope, and then we have a downstream agricultural community that's dependent on those return flows and wants to keep those return flows coming. And so the more we conserve, the less return flows they, they get. So um, I don't think you can look universally and say this is what how much conservation will solve the problem. I think we know, based on this demand hardening um, question, that at a certain point, you, I mean, you, you're not going to get to zero. Um, so at a certain point, you become, uh, you've, you've met your demands, you're, you're totally efficient, you're reusing. Um, how are you going to meet future needs? And how are you going to, um, you know, kind of keep the system going? And that's part of, um, new supply development. That development can't be, I, don't, I think the future of major new water projects is over. That, that, um, that development needs to be incremental, it needs to be modular, it needs to be flexible, it needs to be diverse, it needs to be building only what you need when you need it um, so that you can move in a, in a, in a climate that's going to be continually evolving and changing um, and you need to be adaptable and flexible as you go. So we're almost at the end of our time, so I think we have uh, time for just one more question. Dennis? So the question is, how vulnerable is power production to these issues of uh, water scarcity? <coughs> Anybody like to take that? I'll be Brad, right? Sure. I, I, very, very low. I mean, they have huge, tremendous ability to pay, um, and they actually don't use much water. So between those two, I would suggest that... And, and thankfully, I mean, the great thing about the move to renewables, right, is no water use. Hello. I mean, we freed up roughly 30,000 acre feet as Navajo Generation Station closes that could be used for something else. I will say, I think the, that idea of the water energy nexus is a pretty tricky one, though, because those things are directly connected. And especially in the Colorado River Basin, you have hydropower funds that go into funding restoration projects. Like, all those things are tied together. So power generation might not necessarily be directly vulnerable, but you have to kind of look at how all those pieces are layered on top of each other. Good, good point, actually. Great. Really good point. Great. Well, thank you all for coming, and thanks to our panelists. I uh, hope you've enjoyed this session.